reading in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered, him, so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy Father's Day. It is our great goal and desire that um, no matter what Father's Day means to you, whether that's good, bad, broken, everything in between, that you will experience the fathering of God this morning. And we experience the fathering of God as we open up His Word and hear from Him as the voice of the, be- the Beloved to His beloved children. And this morning we're in Mark chapter 11. And we have to think about this question of authority. When your authority is challenged, what happens? Most of the time, I would say, characteristic of me, when my authority is challenged, it's going to lead to some sort of dispute. <laughs> like confrontation is coming, Right? And often that's where it leads. And here we're getting ready to see in the Gospel of Mark a series of disputes. Jesus had significantly ruffled the feathers of the religious elite in Jerusalem in the temple. He has significantly gotten under their skin by exercising and displaying his authority. And that's going to lead to a series of disputes in the Gospel of Mark. Last week we talked about how Jesus exerted his authority over the temple turning over the money changers' tables, driving people out, refusing to let the the temple, which was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, be turned into a den of robbers. And so what Jesus was doing was exercising his authority, and it was good authority. He's working on behalf of the nation so they might worship and honor him. His authority that's being exercised and expressed and displayed is really good authority. But not everybody liked it, especially those who were in charge of the temple, the religious elite, the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin. They didn't like it at all. In fact, it leads to a series of clashes with them. And so all we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been displaying, he's been showing, highlighting for us Jesus' authority as the Son of God. There's also been this other theme that's kind of been going on along the way as well, and that has been the other authorities have been at work. And they haven't kind of met face on too many times, a few times, and now it's getting ready To have those authorities there, worlds are going to collide. There's a collision course between the authority of the Son of God and the authority that's set up in the world if they refuse to submit to Him. And so, here we have those who don't appreciate Jesus' authority start to challenge it and come to Him and start asking Him questions. And the temple becomes the stage for the challenge to Jesus' authority. So in Mark 11, as we conclude that chapter, we we are in the third day in a row where Jesus goes to Jerusalem and goes to the temple, which that act in and of itself of Jesus is an act of courage and boldness. 
think of what has just happened there as Jesus has just caused a storm in the temple by running some people out, by shouting authoritatively, this is my father's house and it's not to be turned into a den of robbers. And he goes into this place knowing what he's already told his disciples. Chapter 10, verse 33, here's what he told them. We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. He knows that's his destination. He knows who's going to do this. And then he goes right into that. And if there's a thought that Jesus wasn't full of bravery, that somehow Jesus is like, we have this view at times, it's like very toned down Jesus. He's always happy and smiling, and he's not really this bold and courageous figure. Like, I put in front of you the scriptures where Jesus knows the people that are going to seek his death, and he goes right to them. What a patient and, and yet bold and courageous Savior we have. Faces his opponents head on. He, he moves toward his enemies, not away from them. He's giving them, again, another opportunity to to encounter his grace, to encounter his love, to encounter his goodness, to encounter his good authority. Jesus' food, his his greatest desire was to do the Father's will. Whatever that was, he wanted to submit himself fully unto that. And he fully entrusts himself to his Father, and so he's willing to go back to the place where he knows that he's been sent to die. He won't back down, and he shows it by boldly going to those very people who want him dead. In verse 27, in chapter 10, we heard who was going to accuse him. In verse 27, he comes right to them. He came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. That's the crowd he said was going to kill him, and he's there. Now, this, this crowd is the, the religious establishment. They are the religious elite. These are the theologians of the day. They are the ones that are in charge of the temple. They have authority, religious authority, political power, And here Jesus comes in front of them. And last time he was with them, he challenged their authority by doing what he did in the temple. And now they, understanding that they were part of the main target of Jesus' actions, bring him a question. They come to him. And they say in verse 28, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you you this authority to do them? They recognize, right, this was obvious, but they have recognized it, and we need to give them credit. They've recognized the unique authority of Jesus' life and ministry. They have seen the uniqueness of Jesus' deeds. In John, the book of John, we saw Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus, and he says, we know that something's off here. Like, no one could do the things that you do unless God was with him. And he was one of these religious elite. He would have known. And so there's some opinion among them that's like, wait a second, we're seeing your deeds and we're recognizing something's different here. Something's unique here. Or if you look in John chapter 9, this was the man that Jesus healed. He was a man born blind. And some of the Pharisees are discussing like, well, how can this happen? Because the man born blind says, well, Jesus healed me and I don't know who he is, but he healed me. I was blind and now I see And they're kind of debating among themselves, and they recognize something different. Some of them say, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? They're recognizing something unique about Jesus, the uniqueness of his life and ministry. Mark testifies to this as well. In Mark chapter 3, you remember when they, they attribute the works of Jesus to the works of Satan? In other words, they're saying there's unique power here. There's something here that that doesn't go on normally. And so they're just saying, well, 
maybe it's from the power of Satan that he does these things. So they've recognized something different. They've seen or heard of Jesus' might, of the uniqueness of his life and ministry. But what they're asking here is a question of his right. By what authority do you do these things? Now, the things that they're talking about most likely refer to, at least immediately, to the temple clearing, but the list could go on. Surely news had hit their ears of, from fellow scribes that Jesus, remember in Mark chapter 2, with scribes and Pharisees in their midst, forgave a man's sins as he was lowered down in front of him. He said, your faith, by your faith, your sins are forgiven. And they immediately, they're thinking, who has the authority to forgive sins? Well, Jesus is inserting himself in that place and saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. And he says that you ought to know that I have that authority. And I'll say to this man, get up and walk. Surely they had heard of that. Likely they'd heard of how Jesus ate with tax collectors and even called some to follow after him, to be part of his close group of disciples. Surely they'd seen and heard how Jesus had called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, how he'd worked many mighty deeds. Likely some of these very men that Jesus encounters here in chapter 11 were part of the group that was there in chapter 3 that said, well, we think the works that you're doing are actually from the power of Beelzebul, power of Satan. Surely they were some of them that were there in chapter 7. You remember chapter 7 where Jesus has this confrontation with this group of people who are upset because Jesus' disciples eat without washing their hands first. That interaction is probably likely branded in their mind because Jesus in that episode in chapter 7 confronts them on their hypocrisy and says, may your lips might honor me, but your heart's far from me. That'd be probably hard to get out of your mind. Jesus authoritatively in that episode declared all foods clean, standing over their traditions. In other words, chapter 7 at least would have been one of those places where the battle lines have been cemented now between the authority of Jesus as the Son of God and man-made authority, the authority that they're trying to reach and claim and hold on to. So perhaps all these things are in their mind as they question Jesus. By whose authority do you do these things? What right do you have to do the things that you're doing? But as we hear that question, we need to know that's not a genuine question. In some sense, they have it exactly right that Jesus' acts actually lay claim to authority. They express his authority. Jesus himself hasn't hidden that. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. That is a bold statement. To say, like, this is here in me. That puts all other kingdoms on notice. I am the kingdom of God. It's present in me, and it will lay challenge to every other rival kingdom. He hasn't been hidden in chapter 2. He said, I forgive your sins. And they recognize something is different here. And he even says, I'm going to show you that I have the power on earth to forgive sins. And he heals the paralytic. The Sabbath, he says he's Lord of that. Demons are testifying that Jesus is the authoritative one as they're cast out from however he tells them and wherever he tells them to go. Disease, he says he has authority over law, over nature as he calms storms and over the temple as he clears it. Jesus has clearly demonstrated and proclaimed his total authority. The totality of his life and ministry, his words and deeds show his good authority over all things. And so if we read Jesus rightly, if we're looking at his life and ministry rightly, the way that Mark, I think, intends us to see it, that we're going to see that Jesus claims total authority, that he's never been bashful about that at all. If Jesus is who he says he is, who the scripture reveals him to be, if that's really Jesus, if the gospel of Mark is true, then Jesus' authority is meant to extend over every area of life. 
that there's not one part of it that isn't under his authority. And, and what that means for us is that that means all of our life. Not just nature, but all of us. He authoritatively calls us to repent and receive forgiveness, to join him in the kingdom, living life under his good reign and his good rule, following him, taking his life upon ourselves. That is to say, he has the authority. What he says goes in my life totally. That's what it means to follow after Jesus. That's not a call to submit to Jesus in some things. I'll go with you so far, but if you go that direction, I'm going to go this way. If we're going to actually follow Jesus, we're going to submit to him totally. And I say, well, I, I like some of the things you're doing, but the morality that you're teaching, I'm not really in on. And that's to tear Jesus apart, to, to have a disjointed Savior. No, his call to follow is a comprehensive call. Do you remember the, the rich young man a few weeks ago? He comes to Jesus, it seems like he's willing to submit to him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I, want, I want to. I'm in. Except for one area, right? Not really willing to mess with my riches, my possessions. And he goes away sad. Because there aren't people who just say, you can't say, I'll, I'll submit to you in every area except for this one and leave that in reserve. That's to reject Jesus. That's to reject his authority. To submit in some ways and to exclude others is to completely reject him. The person and work of Jesus claim authority, not just over one area, not just over several areas, over every area of our lives. To limit that authority in some way to one area or another is to be like the rich young man. Is to be like these chief priests and scribes and elders. And it's clear that as they come and question Jesus, they don't come as seekers with sincere questions. They're not coming with a genuine concern or a genuine desire to understand the unique authority of Jesus. Haven't they already given their answer to the authority of Jesus? Some of them gave it in chapter 3 when they said, ah, we think that the way you do this is by the power of Satan himself. And they had weighed some of the evidence and they said, well, we don't think that you're actually driven by the power of God. And so in other words, as they come to question him, they don't want to discover something. In fact, I think we hear what they want in chapter 11, verse 18. This is after he cleansed the temple, and here's what they did. They were seeking a way to destroy him. That's what they desire, and we need to read that in their question. It's not a genuine question. Their question is trying to destroy him in some way. They want to take Jesus down, but according to verse 18, they need to do it subversively. They, they can't do it just out in the open, kind of what they want, because, what does it say? The crowd was astonished at his teaching. So they have to be sly, they have to be careful in how they take Jesus down, and that's what they're doing here, trying to entrap him, to get him to maybe, maybe he'll slip up in his words, maybe he'll say something blasphemous. If we say, what authority do you do these things? Maybe he'll say, my authority is from God, plainly, so that everybody can hear, and we can say, well, clearly he's open to the charge of blasphemy. And so they ask about his authority, and try to say, who gave you this to find an accusation against him? Now, they've already recognized his unique power, but now they're trying to get him to slip up so that they can take him out. And perhaps you're thinking, as these opponents come and question, like, all right, Jesus, show them. By whose authority? Tell them. Show them. Do something awesome here. Show them once and for all. Heal someone. But have a storm come and then stop it. Hear the audible voice of the Father from heaven describe you as the Son of God. Let's do that right now, once and for all. Oh, wait. He's already done all that. It's already happened. Right? Jesus' life, his miracles, everything that he's done have already 
happened. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man and Lazarus. And in this story, the the rich man and Lazarus die, and the rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man calls out to heaven and is speaking with Abraham. And here's what he says, starting in verse 27. And he said, I beg you, father, speaking to Abraham, to send him, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He doesn't want someone to follow in his footsteps. He knows he can't get out, but if he can't get out, he doesn't want anybody else to come after him. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he says, well, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. As we look at the, the scribes and the priests and the elders coming to Jesus and questioning him, and we think, well, perhaps if he gave them something here, if he shows them something here, then. But church, one greater than the prophets and Moses is here. He's displayed to them his character, his nature, the very nature of God. He's reflected perfectly. The very image of God is the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory. His life and his miracles are testifying to his authority from God, authority as the son of God. And if they won't listen to that, another thing won't do. Adding another miracle, another authoritative word isn't going to convince them and sway them. And we get into that kind of thinking where we think, if God will just show me some clear power, if he will just speak to me plainly, then I'll know that he's actually God and I'll follow him with all of my life. Now, whether or not God will answer that prayer or not is unclear. But here's what is extremely clear, that he's already done those things. He's already spoken plainly with us. He's already displayed clearly his power to us. Look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at what he said. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's displayed. Look at Jesus. And even at this time in the story, they don't know what we know. We know that Jesus has not only displayed all that he has in the Gospel of Mark so far, but he's going to display even more by dying and raising from the dead. And what we don't need is more evidence. We just need open eyes to see the greatness and the glory of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, it says this in chapter 1. Paul says, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's not that something else needs to be added. It's that we need to see that cross. We need to see Jesus as beautiful and glorious. That's the power of God. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of seeing a stumbling block and folly to some as beautiful and glorious. It's the one who can save our souls. It's a matter of spiritual blindness. We we don't need more evidence or more words. We don't need something that's more clear. We have all that we need. We need our eyes open to the glory that is already there. And so do these scribes. In Luke 16, Abraham points, he says, there's something already present for everyone that's there. They don't need me to, you to go back from the dead. And Jesus is getting ready to do the same. He doesn't point to something new he's going to do. He says, actually, let's think about John and his baptism first. 
We don't need something new. We, we don't need another display of power. We need open eyes to see what's there. The, the priests, these scribes, the Sanhedrin, they already have given a verdict on, the, on all the evidence they've seen on Jesus' life and ministry. And so they don't need more evidence. Say, here, Jesus, give us this. What they need is open eyes, open hearts. They need to repent of the way they're approaching Jesus to accuse and entrap instead of to worship and obey. They come to Jesus thinking, well, we're the authority here. We'll question you. And we'll see if we can find out something or trap you some way. And their questioning of Jesus reveals just how backwards they are. And Jesus, perhaps because of their hard-heartedness and their desire to bring him down and to entrap him, is why Jesus responds the way he does. Not with some sort of greater miracle or something else. Listen to what he does in Mark 11. Verse 29, Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Jesus refuses to sit under their authority because he's not under their authority. He refuses to play along with their game in their way. He is not subject to their entrapping questions. And so he counters with his own question. Jesus hasn't been unclear with things so far. It's not as if he hasn't shown them by what authority he does all the things that he does in his life and ministry. He's been really clear on his claims of authority. And so he counters well, you tell me something. Now, is Jesus dodging their question here? Is he trying to get around it? Trying to entrap them, maybe in return? Are we playing cat and mouse here where we're going to go back and forth? Jesus' counter question, I don't think, is dodging. I don't think he's trying to throw them off the scent. I think he's exposing their folly, exposing the hardness of their hearts you see, it doesn't seem like the baptism of John has much relevance here, but Jesus is all wise. When we see his answer and we start thinking about it, this, this is a perfect answer. If you look in the book of John, it tells us a little bit more detail about the witness of John the Baptist. The book of John, chapter 1, verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Remember, they're being sent from Jerusalem. Again, there's probably some similarity in the crowds that are being expressed here. He says to them, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So he's giving this clear explanation to them of who he is. He clearly claims not to be the Christ, but to be the one who prepares the way for the greater one. He says, there's one greater. He's coming after me. He's even among you. And many hear this testimony, and they still come to John. They accept it as this testimony that's true. Jesus even comes to be baptized by John. We see that in chapter 1, verse 29 of John. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and listened to his witness, what he's saying about the Christ. Behold, this is of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Or we could look back in the Gospel of Mark 
And what do we see about John and his baptism in the Gospel of Mark? In chapter 1, this is when we see it in verse 10. When, he came, when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, Jesus comes out of the water, and immediately he, John, saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And John takes all of this in. He, he recognizes his unique ministry as one preparing the way for Jesus. He sees him. He baptizes him. He sees the heavens ripped open. He sees the, the Spirit descend. He hears this voice from heaven. John's witness from first to last in the Gospels is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He wavers in that in Mark a little bit. We see that. In the, but he is convinced his ministry is pointing to Jesus being the authoritative one. It's clear. That's why he said, I must decrease, and he needs to increase. John's witness, Jesus is the Lamb of God. I prepared the way for him. This is the one I wanted to make way for so that everyone would turn to him. He saw it. He heard it. He testified to it. So, in other words, if they take John's baptism seriously as a baptism from heaven, then what are they going to say about Jesus? If they take John's baptism as one from heaven, then they're going to say, we have to accept Jesus as this one who has authority from heaven. And then we should follow him as one who has called us to repent and believe. But if they think John's witness can be explained some other way, without all that heaven stuff and heavenly authority, then they might have a good question. But you see how Jesus' counter-question puts them in their place and rightly exposes their heart. Well, one author says this, I think is helpful. We now see that Christ employed no cunning strategium to, in order to escape, but fully and perfectly answered the question which had been proposed. For it was impossible to acknowledge that John was a servant of God without acknowledging that he was himself the Lord. He was himself the Lord. Jesus puts him in their place. A decision about John is going to be a decision about me. If you're not willing to answer about John, then I'm not sure that you're actually coming with any real sincere, uh, sincere question. His counter-question, it draws them out of their shelter that they want to sit in authoritatively and just come out and have Jesus exposed. It draws them out of that shelter into the exposure of their own hard-heartedness. And here's what they do in verse 31. They discuss it with one another, saying... Well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they had all held that John really was a prophet. Amazing when you see all like, here's the great theologians of the day. Right, here's the religious elite, the establishment, and they get together. They're kind of huddled up. And they start to realize, like, Jesus just put us in a pretty big dilemma because they're not genuine. If we say it's from heaven, then we should believe him. They recognize that. But if we say from man, then, well, they won't like us. Because a lot of them think it isn't from man. Again, they're in this dilemma because they refuse Jesus. They reject Jesus as their authority. They refuse the truth. And what's happened now is that they're now full of cowardice. One theologian said this, that sin makes man a coward. But a life in the truth of Christ makes him bold. Tell me which one they are right now cowards. They're refusing to take a stand because one they believe is outright false and the other one that they might believe is true they won't say because they don't want to be in trouble. Cowardly. These great authorities, the, the 
authorities of the temple, the religious elite, they're scared of the consequences of their answer. And this fear keeps them unwilling to act with any sort of real conviction. And so what do they say? Verse 33, we don't know. They just put it out on the table. We're going to state our non-committal either way. We don't want to pick one side or the other. And their rejection of Jesus and their fear of man has clouded their judgment. And they're unwilling to answer honestly. They're being cowards. Honesty would look at the, all the works and they would recognize the uniqueness of Jesus' life and ministry and say, well, it's got to be from heaven. We know something's different here. That's what Nicodemus came and said in chapter 3 of the book of John. He says, well, something's different here. That's honesty. Or they could just say, well, you know what? You and all of your life and ministry is all baloney. It must be from the power of Satan. Something unique's going on here, but it's not from heaven. They could say that too, but they don't do either one. And Jesus showed them how illogical it was to say that his power was from Satan. He says, well, if the house is divided against itself, it won't be able to stand. So if I'm casting out demons and you think I'm driven by the power of Satan, then that seems to be pretty foolish. Bad strategy for advancing that kingdom. So when they ask and they say, we don't know, it's not so much that they don't know, but they're more unwilling to know. They don't want to know. And so they haven't approached Jesus to ask any some sort of sincere question, and it shows in their non-committal. And so here's what Jesus replies to them, verse 33. Neither I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And they came to Jesus. They came to the one who can save their souls, to the one who's the Messiah, the one that they were supposed to be looking for, longing for, praying for, hoping for, and rejoicing in when he comes. But they don't come to him with sincerity and genuine questions. Anybody who comes to Jesus with sincerity will receive from him. Matthew chapter 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you're going to find. Knock and the door is going to be open to you. That means if you come with sincerity to Jesus, you're going to receive. He's going to reveal himself rightly to you. Instead, they came to entrap. They wanted only to ensnare and to take Jesus down. They come as those who are unwilling to actually submit to Jesus' authority. In other words, they come in the height of their folly. And one author says it this way, you will not truly confess Jesus as the Christ until you are willing to bow to his authority as your Savior, Lord, and teacher. You will not confess Jesus as the Christ until you are will willing to bow to his authority. Now, may we receive this questioning from these chief priests and the scribes and the elders as a warning. This could not be displayed any more clearly or starkly than with these chief priests and scribes and elders. Here in chapter 11, they approach Jesus with these entrapping questions. But later in the week, they're going to approach him again. If you turn in chapter 14... Verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Their approach has changed. No longer any questions. They're sending an army. We see it again in verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they come together. What are they coming together to do? Verse 55, 
The whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. If one will not confess Jesus, in the, Jesus as the Christ, this is where it's going to go. We will either crown him and submit to him as our king, as the son of God, or crucify him. Like there's not really a middle ground with Jesus. You're either in or you're not. Whether you're for us or against us. One will not confess Jesus as the Christ until one is willing to bow to his authority. And if you're not willing to bow to his authority, you're going to work for his demise. This Jesus, who Mark has shown us as the Son of God with authority, with the might and the right to reign and rule over all, is also the one who came and was willing to submit himself to the accusations of chief priests, scribes, and elders who came after his authority because they wanted their own. He's the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So yes, we say one must be willing to submit to his authority in order to be called his own and have life under his good reign and his good rule and his kingdom. But that his authority as one who is willing to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many is really good authority. In fact, the only authority that we can fully entrust ourselves to and the one who will never let us down without authority. He won't even let us down in that his authority is life-giving, eternally life-giving authority. And that's authority worth following, submitting to, celebrating, worshiping, remembering. Amen. As those who submit themselves fully to the authority of Jesus, we get to celebrate a sacred family meal together. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion, where we remember how Jesus, with all authority in heaven and on earth, lays down his life in order to ransom, in order to buy back those who've been sold under slavery to sin and death. We get to remember that Jesus' body was broken, that ours might be made whole eternally, that his blood was poured out, that we might receive forgiveness of sins now and forevermore. And so if you're a believer, if you've submitted yourself under the lordship and authority of the Son of God, then this meal is for you as a means of worship and of encouragement and of remembering what Jesus has done and of looking forward to his return where his authority will be seen over all things clearly. If you're a believer, we'd encourage you, come up and receive a piece of the bread, receive the cup, and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And because his authority, he now has the authority to say to you, you're in part of my family because of what I've done. We don't have that kind of authority to claim it for ourselves. He claims it, and he gives it to us. He'll come and be reminded of that. If you're not a believer, we'd say instead of taking this meal, submit yourself under the authority of Jesus. Repent and trust in him. Listen to his good authority. Take his yoke upon you. Let him be the one who leads your life. Follow after him. So let me explain again just how we're going to do this during this time We'll start at least for these sections. You guys in the back and downstairs are on your own to keep as socially distanced as is appropriate. For the sections up here, you'll see a flow chart to which direction to flow. We'll start with the back and just please go one row at a time forward and just stick out your hand and you'll hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you. Receive the bread and take the cup and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. So let's pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Would you bow your heads?
Let's pray, Father, we are so blessed as your people to be under the authority of such a good God. Lord, forgive us because when we sin, even as believers, we still rebel against that authority. We still, in moments of time, think that our way is better. We think that our authority is better. And yet, God, your grace is so amazing that because of what you did on the cross, because of your authority over death, God, we are not going to be held in judgment for that sin, for that rebellion. God, we are grateful. And we just pray, Father, that if there are any of those here this morning, Lord, who have not yet received your authority, if they are questioning, seeking, God, I pray that your spirit, Lord, would open their minds and see that it's such a good thing to be under your authority, our maker, our creator, our designer. Lord, you know us best. You know our purpose. And under your authority, Lord, we can realize that. And so, Lord, we just pray that that for those who may not know you, God, that they would submit. And for those of us who do, God, that we would be encouraged, God, to see your goodness again anew and that, God, we would be more intentional about getting in your word, about understanding what that authority is, what it means, what you ask of us, Lord. We're thankful, God, that you did what you did on the cross, that you have made the way for us to have access to your throne, to even be able to receive what you have for us, God. We we pray that as we take this meal that we would be reminded of what it costs you and of the truth that you will come back, Lord, for us one day and that we will dine with you in a place that our minds can't even grasp. We just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
As we think about coming to Jesus and his word with, without entrapping questions and not this prove it to me attitude, we see his authority, uh, it actually brings so much uh, freedom to know we're not in control because we'll, we would have messed it up anyway, right? Um, and so our response song today is along those lines. That's just to proclaim that this is God's world and uh, we'll just go from there. Would you guys stand as we sing?